skills on the grill, which is brats and, uh, and sauerkraut and baked beans. I love that meal so much. But, like, there's certain foods that we associate. So, like, on Thanksgiving, right, we would typically have what? If you're an American, you have a, a turkey, right? Uh, so you have your Thanksgiving turkey. You, uh, if you go to an event, like a, a ball game or something like that, what do you typically get while you're there? Like maybe, you know, like hot dogs and beer, you know, that's kind of a thing there. Do you even like that? I even put that Yankees logo on there for you, Matt, there, just to, just to say I love you. So <laughs> if you go to the movies, I don't know why this is a thing, but like in the movies, you know, you got to have your popcorn and your movie candy. I mean, the, somewhere along the line, the, the movie theaters like really you know, drill that into our heads, that little thing about let's all go to the lobby and get, your, get yourself a snack. We're, I'm one of those, I'll, I'll admit this begrudgingly, I guess, that I'm one of those cheap people that, like, I don't like paying the price that you would pay for those things at uh, the movie theater. And my, my kids will tell you this. I, I mean, they're probably going to hopefully go the other direction, be super generous with their kids, but like, you know, we always go to the movies, you know, we get movie, you know popcorn and pop, I'm like, no, I'm not paying $15 for that, for crying out loud. I'm not above stopping at a Walmart before we go to the theater, buying the 99 cent candies, right, and then like wearing the pants that have big pockets and just slipping them in there. I don't know why I always feel slightly guilty, like I'm smuggling something over a border, you know, when I go into a movie theater. With the movie theater, you know, and then the movie starts, and I'm like, yes, I saved 10 bucks. Here you go. Here's a candy kits, right? Uh, or, you know, just summer in general, right? I mean, like, somewhere this weekend, you probably will be having uh, burgers, watermelon, brats on the grill. Ha- have you already had that yet this weekend? Raise your hand if you already have thrown something on the grill and had that. Some of you guys got to get to work. Maybe tomorrow is your day to get some burgers on the grill. Tomorrow I'm doing ribs. Uh, for our, our uh, meal there. I love some good summer ribs. But I'll tell you what, there's certain things that we associate with certain times, and, and there was a meal that Jesus shared with his disciples, and it would have been a meal that would have been one of their more common meals. It would have been the closest equivalent that we would have had to like a Thanksgiving meal. So whereas Thanksgiving, like, you know, everybody does some version of their Thanksgiving meal, for Jesus and his disciples, they celebrated the Passover meal together. Um, this is Da Vinci's uh, painting of the meal, which if you were here a couple weeks ago where we talked about what eating in the Middle Eastern culture would have been like, of course, it would have looked nothing like that. Uh, the one meme I saw for something like that of Jesus going to a restaurant said, yes, can I have a table for 26? And they said, but there's only 13 of you. He's like, yes, but we'll all be sitting on one side. So this would not have been how Jesus and his disciples would have celebrated the Passover meal. They would have been reclining probably around a triclinium there. There would have been, you know, multiple tables, and they would have been eating this meal as a traditional thing. Now, the only thing that that Jesus in this picture would have had in common with my wife is both he and my wife love getting everybody around one long table. That's been one source of, I wouldn't say contention, but every year around Thanksgiving, it becomes an issue when my wife's trying to figure out a way to get all of our family that comes into town all around one long table. So I've got a couple of pictures. So this is back in 2010. This is at our condo when we first moved here. You know, we had like the, the folding tables and we kind of like stack them and then one round table on the end and got everybody on one table. 
their house uh, in Willow Creek there in this 2015. We kind of had to do two tables and another one kind of going around to the side. Uh, this next one here is uh, from 2017 there that we were up at her parents' house. And this was most recently at our, our new house down there in 2018. We were struggling with how to make this work. And every year it's a thing because she just loves gathering all the family around one big table. Now, I'm okay with, like, you know, splitting up the tables, but apparently that's, like, sacrilegious. You don't do that on Thanksgiving for my wife or her family. But there's something cool about all being around a table together, right? Like, especially these big tables where there's just, like, a lot of people. If you've ever had a, a good party and, like, you manage to go and you get a room in a restaurant and you just get a bunch of friends or some kind of a family reunion and stuff, gathering your close friends and your family around a table and sharing a meal, sharing laughter together. And this is something that Jesus did. Jesus took what would have been this celebration that they would have all experienced on a regular basis, on an annual basis. He took this Passover meal and he celebrated it with his disciples and he breathed new life into it, breathed new meaning into it. And Jesus is a master of illustration where he would say this is like that. And he would equate things, whether through parables or through practical illustrations, to the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God among us relates to us today. And he did this with this last meal, typically called the Last Supper, um, that he experienced with his disciples. Let's read the beginning of this, Matthew 26. Each of the Gospels <clears throat> give an account of this narrative. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, where do you want us to go to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. So this would have been a meal that they would have been celebrating anyway because as, as a Jewish person, you would celebrate the Passover on a regular basis. It kicked off with the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. There were multiple feasts that led up to and went along with the Passover meal. And so you see the preparations here. Jesus is getting ready to experience the Passover meal. And I want to just highlight a few things that relate to us today that we can learn from how Jesus took this important meal and how it relates to us even 2,000 years later still celebrating this meal or version of it together. So first of all, the table, and I'm going to use the table synonymously for this, uh, this thing we call communion, the Eucharist, the Last Supper, because this is a t a, a, an inclusive table. It's one that Jesus celebrated with his disciples, and it's one that we still celebrate today as followers of Christ. First and foremost, the, the table is about remembering. The Passover meal was a meal of remembrance. It's a meal where the Jewish people remembered something crucial that happened in their history. Now, we have holidays that we celebrate, including tomorrow is Memorial Day. So as, as Americans, we celebrate Memorial Day. Memorial Day is a day of remembering those who gave their lives in service of our country for the freedom that we celebrate. It's important to, to pause to reflect, and to remember. So for the, for the Jewish people, Passover was exactly that time. Um, the preparation of the meal, you, you saw that we read earlier, you know, the disciples asked Jesus, you know, hey, we're going to go prepare this meal. How do you want to do it? They're asking him because there was a lot that went into the preparation of a Passover meal. It was a big deal. 
traditional Passover meal celebrations involved a huge meal, plus not one, not two, not even three, but four cups of wine that was celebrated with this meal, with a traditional Passover meal. They started at sunset, and they often didn't end until around midnight. They took place after several days of exhausting work and travel, oftentimes, because this was one of the pilgrimage festivals. So if you lived outside of Jerusalem, if you lived outside of your area, you would travel to the temple to to make your sacrifice, and so there would have been traveling involved with this. To that end, you would associate it with Thanksgiving. You know how, like, at the end of a Thanksgiving uh, holiday, you're just, like, so exhausted from all the travel, the food, and all the work that went into it. A Passover meal would have been very, very similar to that in, in the uh, preparation that went into it. As a matter of fact, I found this interesting, that exhaustion was so common that, that rabbis through the years uh, ruled that a person who, quote, dozed lightly, could remain a part of the meal, but if you fell sound asleep, you had to be excused from the room. So there was even allowance that, that you could kind of like take a tiny little cat nap because it was such an exhausting process and there was so much work and preparation. Not to mention, when was the last time you had four glasses of wine? How many of you had a hard time keeping your eyes open after that, right? So it's a little more understandable when you read this and then you read that immediately following this, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples and we're reading that they did what? They were conked out. They were falling asleep. Jesus is like, hey, come pray with me. And they're like, Jesus, we just had four glasses of wine and a big meal and we've been working for the last couple days. It's hard to keep our eyes open. So there's all this work that went into this meal, but this was an important meal because it was a meal of remembrance. And even today for the Jewish people, the, the Passover celebrated in what's known as a Seder, which means order. It's an order of service. Seder is a word that means an order of service. So there is a, if you've ever had the, the privilege of celebrating a Seder meal, there is a specific process. There are certain things that are said at certain times, certain ways you eat certain foods and do certain things. And each of those things have a very, very specific meaning. I would love to, at some point, dive into everything that goes into a Seder and maybe to do a whole series on it because it is just truly, truly fascinating to kind of explore the rich imagery and heritage that goes into that meal. But I, I, I want to kind of gloss over that just a little bit this morning as we highlight a few things. But it's important to note that this meal is a meal of remembrance because for the people, the Jewish people, is marking a specific moment. They're history was one that was, that was birthed out of slavery. They were slaves in a foreign land, and they were under Egyptian rule, and so they worked as slaves for the Egyptians. And if you read the book of the Exodus, the pivotal turning point in the nation of Israel came when God miraculously delivered this entire nation out of slavery and gave them their own land. This was such a crucial milestone for the Jewish people that they mark that moment with the Passover meal. Every Passover meal, the Seder, a child at the table would ask. Traditionally, they would say, why is this night different than any other nights? And they would respond that this is a night that we remember when we were slaves brought out of a land and given freedom. The focus of the evening is to tell the miraculous story of slaves who became free. 
So Luke 22, verses 24 and 26, as we're continuing along here with this story, uh, we find that at this table, it's not, a, it's not a good family meal until an argument breaks out, if your Thanksgivings are anything like mine there. Luke 22, it says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Now, remember again from a couple weeks ago, this was a common theme. They were probably arguing about the seating arrangements at the table, who was sitting where, because it was very, very important as to who sat where and your positions of authority, your positions of seniority. So like, you know, I'm an, I'm an elder disciple. Jesus talked to me first. He called me first, and therefore I should sit here. No, no, no. Well, I, I serve with Jesus here. And they're arguing over who's the greatest. And Jesus is like, boys, we've been through this before. Listen, you're not getting this lesson, so let me show you. Jesus said to them, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules should be like the one who serves. And we also read in John, uh, another account of the story, it said, Jesus loved his own in this world, and now wanted to show his love to them until the end. So he took off his cloak, he picked up a towel, poured water into a basin, and he began to wash their feet. There was so much happening in the scene. There's so much going on here. So they would have been wearing an outer cloak and then an inner coat, or an outer coat, an inner cloak there. Jesus took off this coat that you were wearing there if you were traveling, if you were a person that was uh, reclining at the table and would have strapped a towel around him as a servant. Remember, because you're reclining at a table, if you would have remembered from that picture that we showed of the triclinium there, your elbow would have been here, you would have been eating with your right hand, and your, your feet would have been out. So typically a servant could come around and could wash the dust from your feet, especially if you've been traveling with open-toed shoes or sandals there. You would have been traveling, your feet would have been dirty, you would have been exhausted. So that would have been something that a servant would do, and Jesus horrified all of them by stepping away from the table and serving. And so what Jesus also teaches us is that the table is not just for remembering, the table is for serving. This is a table where we identify with Jesus by serving those in our community. If there's something that I'm so proud of about our church, it is because we know how to serve well. All of you who have been a part of this journey or some who are even new to this know that that's one of the hallmarks of what we do as a church is we're all about serving our community in big ways and small ways. One of the ways that we're doing that uh, this coming week that kind of Matt talked about a little bit last week came out of a conversation that uh, was had of like, hey, the, the, the high school is having a graduation and parking is a huge deal. And we're like, we've got this parking lot. What if we opened up our parking lot? But what if we went even further and like rented these golf carts and we could shuttle people back and forth? And so we're doing that. You know, we're investing a little bit of money and then some, some volunteer hours into that. It's just simple acts of service that says that, you know, we identify with Jesus when we serve. And this meal is about serving others. The table is for serving. One of the names for this meal traditionally within the church is the word Eucharist. It comes from a Greek word, Eucharistos, which means thanksgiving or gratitude. This is a word that is associated with this meal because this is a meal of gratitude. For, for the Roman Catholics, if you grew up in, uh, in a Catholic background, there's a word called transubstantiation, which means that they believe that through a miraculous act that the body and blood of Christ become incarnated in the meal, in the sacraments there. The Lutherans believe in something called sacramental union, which is that the body and blood of Christ are present in, with, and under 
the forms of the bread and the wine. And simply speaking, what those two things and those two approaches talk about is this idea of something incarnate, that Jesus took something very present, very tangible, very real. He took a couple of these elements that would have been at the Passover meal, the matzah bread, this unleavened bread, and the glasses of wine, and he gave them new meaning. He incarnated himself into these things. By holding up the bread, he said, this is my body. By holding up the wine, he says, this is my blood that is shed for you. Christ became incarnated in the bread and the wine in the same way that he became human and put on human flesh to be present among us. This is not a God who is distant from us, but a God who is present with us. I love Eugene Peterson. He's the, uh, the author or the translator of the message translation. And he says, to eyes that see every bush is a burning bush. This idea that God is present in very everyday things. So in the one sense, there's nothing super special about the bread that we celebrate with or the juice that we have. This is like a Welsh's grape juice or depending on the sale prices, maybe even a Kroger grape juice. I think Sarah picks up the bread from, uh, I, I, I don't know where, but I see the rolls. It's a nice looking roll there, but there's nothing inherently sacred about the bread but it becomes a very sacred act. It becomes a sacrament because we're recognizing that God is present in these everyday, ordinary things. But he's not just present in those things. He's present everywhere. And we recognize that this table is about recognizing God's presence in all things, which takes me to the next thing that says that the, the, present, or the table is about celebrating. It's about thanksgiving because that's what we read, that this word Eucharist means gratitude or thanksgiving. It's a table of celebration. Sometimes we come to the table in a very solemn act of remembering. Sometimes we come with joyful hearts. Sometimes we may come with sad hearts. But it's all okay because we bring our very real selves to the table and we're welcomed exactly as we are. We're seen by God and we take these very ordinary elements and we see Christ in them. But the table is about celebration. I love what Shauna Nyquist says about this. She says in her book, Bread and Wine, she said, I believe that Jesus asked us to remember him during the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the wine every time, every meal, every day, no matter where we are, who we are, what we've done. To those of us who believe that all of life is sacred, every crumb of bread and sip of wine is a Eucharist, a remembrance, a call to awareness and holiness right where we are. So in a very real sense, the Eucharist a meal of celebration, a meal of thanksgiving is something that we can have and take with us anywhere we go. We pause for moments in the church, and maybe you grew up in the kind of a church where you celebrate it very infrequently. Perhaps you go, went to a type of church where you celebrate it every week. There's, there's no real rhyme or reason to that. There's probably some benefits to both ways of doing that. But let's not miss the sacredness of the moment that we're marking a time of thanksgiving, of gratitude, of celebration of what God is doing in our lives, God's presence with us. To that end, 
Christ becomes incarnated not only in the bread and the juice, but in the, every crumb of bread, every meal that we celebrate, we recognize and we mark God's presence with us. And to that end, communion then is not just about remembering something that happened in the past, but communion is about participating in what God is doing here and now. So it is both looking back with gratitude, with remembrance, but it is also marking God's presence in the here and the now. I want to share a, a, a little video from uh, Rachel Held Evans, who unfortunately uh, is no longer with us. She passed away just a little over a month or so ago, tragically at a very, very young age. She had some really, really great things to say about the church and her journey into finding who God was in the midst of growing up in um, some more conservative churches and getting, uh, becoming disenfranchised with the church. But she talked about how she rediscovered God through the sacraments of communion, through the sacraments of the Eucharist. Take a look at this. Well, people these days are talking a lot about the church dying and how do we reach millennials? Um, is there any relevance to the church in this day and age? And I guess my response to that is that we, we have the tools we need to introduce people to Jesus. The church has been introducing people to Jesus for 2,000 years. And it's not about trying to update things with a hip new coffee shop or about having a pastor who wears skinny jeans and like ironic t-shirts. It's about uh, communion. When you think about communion and you think about how this is Christ's table, it's not my table, it's not my denomination's table, it's not your table, it's Christ's table. And anyone who is hungry is welcome to that table. Jesus makes the invitation list, not us. Um, I think that's deeply appealing to people who long for communion with God, with their neighbor, and even with their enemies. Uh, the table has been and always will be one of the most powerful and countercultural truths of Christianity and one of the most powerful um, aspects of church life. And that brings me to what I feel is one of the most important parts about the table and one of the most powerful messages to the table, which is that the table is Christ's table and it's for everyone. All are welcome. When we say you belong here, we're talking about here in this church, but we're also speaking of the table, and we're saying you belong at the table. You belong, you have a seat at the table of communion with Christ and with his saints. You have a seat at the table because you are loved where you are. In the Passover celebration, in the Haggadah, it is traditionally opened with this phrase that says, all who are hungry, come and eat. All who are needy, come celebrate Passover. The food is for the hungry. And the table is for those who need the table. The scandalous thing about the table is that when we come to this table, 
and it's a metaphorical table because we're using this little car table to hold the elements and you'll be receiving it from servers on either side. But as you take the bread, as you dip it in the juice, you will be dipping it in the juice alongside of your brothers and sisters here in this room, some of whom do not think like you, have not voted like you, do not believe like you, or some of whom you may think shouldn't be even at the table. But the truly scandalous thing about the Last Supper is that Jesus welcomed the opportunity to bring his disciples together to sit them at one table, squabbling and all, arguing and all of their other dysfunctionalities being what they were, and to bring them to the table together. Because one of the things we've learned through the series is that Jesus was very, very comfortable eating meals with people that nobody thought he should be eating with, right? He would eat with Pharisees and religious leaders. He would eat with tax collectors and prostitutes. And he was okay with all of those people at the table. Because Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. To that end, you could say, it's not the full who need the table, it's the hungry. So if you are hungry, if you are in need, the table is for you. At the Last Supper, Jesus ate that meal with Peter, Andrew, James, and John, disciples who were working class, fishermen, everyday ordinary people. He ate with Matthew, who was a tax collector, uh, a sellout to the regime of his day, who would have been despised by his fellow countrymen. He ate with Simon, who was a political zealot, who believed very, very different things politically than probably some of the other disciples did. He even ate with Judas, the person that he knew would betray him. He broke bread and drank the wine with all of those people because all were welcome. I love what Richard Beck in his book, Unclean, says. He says it this way. He says, participation in the Lord's Supper is an inherently moral act. In the first century church and in our own time, people who would never have associated with each other in the larger society sit as equals around the table of the Lord. The Eucharist, therefore, is not simply a symbolic expansion of the moral circle. The Lord's circle, the Lord's Supper, becomes a profoundly subversive political event in the lives of the participants. The sacrament brings real people divided in the larger world into a sweaty, intimate flesh and blood embrace where there shall be no difference between them and the rest. The truly scandalous thing about this meal that I think probably has been lost, especially in some churches and denominations, is that it was intended to be for all. And some churches and denominations began to say, no, this table is only for some. Perhaps you've been to a church where they told you that if you were not a part of this denomination, if you had not been baptized into this way, if you've not done this, you, you're not welcome to receive those elements. I've been in those situations where even though I am a Protestant Christian pastor, I could not receive the elements in a certain denomination. And in that moment, you feel excluded. You feel like an outsider and other than. Jesus said, all who are hungry come to the table. 
This was not something the disciples got right away. They struggled with it. As a matter of fact, even if you go further into the New Testament in the book of Acts, after Jesus died and the disciples began to spread the gospel, the message of Christ, outsiders from their circle even began to come in. Gentiles, those who were non-Jewish practitioners, and the disciples struggled with, how do we welcome them to the table? It took Peter receiving a vision from God where he saw this, this sheet being led down from heaven. And in that sheet were the unclean animals along with the clean animals. In the Jewish tradition, there were clean animals and unclean animals. And God saying, Peter, take and eat. Basically saying the clean and the unclean are all together. And that none are excluded. All who wants to receive are welcome. Even this modern word that we use that's probably more closely associated in the Protestant tradition for this meal is a meal called communion. It comes from these two Latin words, com meaning together, and union meaning togetherness or one, together as one. We come to this table from a variety of different backgrounds, a variety of different faith experiences, a variety of different beliefs, political backgrounds, social backgrounds, racial backgrounds, all these different backgrounds that we come with each of our own individual baggage that we bring to the table. But we come here together as one because we're united in Christ. 1 Corinthians 10 says this, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? When we come together, we come to this table together as one, which is one of the most subversive, incredible acts that this table does is it breaks down the walls that we see that divides us, and we recognize that we are together as one. Take a look at this little short clip from Reverend Michael Curie. Do this for the remembrance of me. There was a woman who became an Episcopalian in the 1940s, and she was dating a young guy who was a, a Baptist, a licensed, licensed to preach in the Baptist tradition. And she took him to her church. Both of them were African-American. The church where they went was all white. This was in the 1940s in the segregated heart of America. When she went to communion, he sat in the pew because in those days, if you were Baptist, you didn't take communion in an Episcopal church and vice versa. And so he sat in the pews. She went up to take communion, was the only black person in the congregation. And he waited to see what would happen. Because not only were they taking the bread, but he noticed that they were all drinking from the same cup. And he had never seen black folk and white folk drink out of the same cup or from the same water fountain. The Christ, the cup of salvation. And so she went up to take communion and the priest came and in those days just the priest gave out the bread. The priest was giving out the bread, the body of Christ, the bread of heaven, the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. And then the priest came along with the chalice, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ given for thee, preserve thy body and soul into everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for thee. And he got to the black woman, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, given for thee, preserve thy body and soul. 
And that man said that any church where black and white drink from the same cup has discovered something I want to be a part of and that the world needs to learn about. That man and that woman were my parents. This is the sacrament of unity that can overcome even the deepest estrangements between human beings. It's the sacrament of unity that overcomes even the deepest of estrangements. Because when we come to the table, we recognize that there is more that unites us than what divides us. There's more that brings us together at the table than there are reasons for us to focus on the things that divide. In a moment, we're going to receive the elements together as a family, communion together as one. And you're going to come here and receive alongside of people who are not like you. Because this church, as it's grown, continues to diversify in thought, in belief, in political backgrounds. By God's grace, one day more racially, as we begin to see the diversity represent the kingdom of God that we participate in. And you may have to receive the elements alongside of someone that you may struggle to be next to, but that is the kingdom of God. Because Christ came to show us that together as one, we receive from the same table. We drink from the same cup. We eat from the same body. Shane Claiborne says it this way, and I love this so much. He says, the genius of communion, of bread and wine, is that bread is the food of the poor and wine is the drink of the privilege, and that every time we see those two things together, we are reminded of what we share instead of what divides us. So I want to invite the band to come up. I want to invite our servers to come as we receive the elements. As we do... We don't have the physical act of breaking the bread. We have the elements of the pieces of bread together. But it represents the body that is broken. We have juice instead of wine. And it's one that we dip our bread into. And when we do these simple acts, we're doing it together as one recognizing that Christ is present in the act. He's present in this moment. He's present in the bread, in the juice, in this room, in all the meals that we share together. Because the table reminds us that ultimately faith is not about being right. It's not about being good or in agreement. Faith is about feeding and being fed. And the table is for all who wish to be fed. Here's what I want to do as we prepare to receive. There's a prayer that I want to read the first part together, and then when we come to the bold part, we're going to all come in and say these words in affirmation together. And then we'll invite you to come down either aisle and a step forward. One of the ways that we do this here, if you've been, you've known this, if you're new, we ask you just come forward with open hands in a posture like this that says that you're ready to receive. 
that we mirror with our body what we wish to say with our minds and our hearts, that we say that we're receiving this gift the way that we receive all good gifts from God. The bread is placed in your hand, as they say, the body of Christ broken for you. We take the bread and we dip it in the juice and we receive it, as they say, the blood of Christ shed for you. It's a table of remembrance, remembering the sacrifice of Christ. It's a table of celebration, celebrating the goodness of God in our lives. And it's a table that is for everyone because all are welcome at the table. I'll read this first part and ask you to join in on the bold. The table is now made ready and all are welcome. It is the table of fellowship of Jesus and all who love him. It is the table of sharing with the poor of the world with whom Jesus identified himself. It is the table of communion with the earth in which Christ became incarnate. So come to this table, you who have much faith, you who would like to have more. You who have been here often and you who have not been for a long time. You who have tried to follow Jesus and you who have failed. Come, it is Christ who invites us to meet him here. Will you say this together with me? We come together to the table because we are all invited. Loving God through your goodness, we have this bread and juice to offer, which has come forth from the earth and human hands have made. May we know your presence in the sharing so that we may know your touch and presence in all things. We celebrate the life that Jesus has shared among his people through the centuries and shares with us now. Made one in Christ and one with each other, we offer these gifts and with them ourselves a single living act of praise. Through Christ and with Christ and in Christ, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, to you be honor, glory, and praise forever and ever. Will you stand with me? Let me pray as we prepare to receive. Gracious God, we thank you for the gifts of fellowship at the table. We're so grateful that we are all invited to come. We're grateful for the gift of communion, of being together as one. So we celebrate together with thanksgiving in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.